0: In the early years of the fifth century, the Latin-speaking church in the Roman Empire was taken over by a theological controversy. It began in North Africa and it quickly spilled over to numerous other parts of the Mediterranean world. Uh, The leading combatants in this debate were a British monk named Pelagius and an African bishop named Augustine. And the central issue under debate was the question of how to reconcile the sovereign grace of God with human freedom and responsibility. Now, in the end, as you may know, it was Saint Augustine who was judged by the church to be in the right on this. But this was far from the last time that this particular debate would ignite. It flared up again in 9th century Germany, and then again in the 14th century in England and the continent. During the time of the Protestant Reformation, it became once again a subject of heated controversy, and it so divided French Catholics in the 17th century that the Pope himself was forced to intervene. On each of these occasions, one of the main topics under under dispute was the so-called doctrine of predestination. And one of the main, though not only scriptural passages, at the heart of debate was the ninth chapter of Romans. In this session, we'll discuss this much read and much disputed chapter and what it has to say about this question of the sovereign grace of God. But more importantly in this session, we're going to try to understand why Paul addresses this subject in the way he does and why he believes that it is central to his message of good news. In order to understand why Paul turns his attention to this topic, why he even thinks it's necessary to include this in his letter, he could have left it out, you have to keep in mind what he's said so far and how he concludes chapter 8. Now, now remember, Paul's goal in this letter has been to, to unpack for the Romans the good news of the righteousness of God, how it is that the God of Israel is setting to right what went so terribly wrong under the influence of sin. And by this point, Paul has, he's explained quite a lot. He's talked about how the death of Jesus was God's way of dealing justly but also mercifully with human guilt and death. He's talked about how through Jesus' resurrection, not only was Jesus himself vindicated, but all of those who are joined to him were reconciled to and at peace with God. He's explained how humans were not only guilty of sin, but actually enslaved by sin as some kind of tyrannical power and how we have been liberated from that tyranny through our participation in Jesus' death and resurrection. Then in chapter 8, he talked about the gift of the Holy Spirit and how those who are in Christ have been set free to live a life of faith and hope and love. And all of this brings him, at the very end of chapter 8, to that, that beautiful celebration of God's unshakable love. For I am sure, he says, that neither death, nor life, nor rulers, nor angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like I said, that's a, that's a beautiful, arousing description of the steadfast love of God. And the, the pastoral implication of that statement is clear. Christians need not fear for their future. They can rest assured knowing that they are held by the love of God and that God's love cannot be shaken. But as comforting as that statement is, it also raises a serious question, especially for the Jewish readers of Paul's letter. After all, didn't God also promise his love to them? Didn't God say, didn't he commit himself in love to the people of Israel? And wasn't that love supposed to be steadfast and dependable? That's a question that Jewish readers might be asking of Paul. And it's clearly a question he has on his mind as well. The New Testament scholar Richard Hayes summarizes the question this way. Has Israel been separated from the love of God? Does their refusal to accept Jesus Christ as Lord exclude them from the sphere of God's mercy? Or as the fourth century church father, John Chrysostom, even more succinctly states it, why did God even make the promises to the Jews if God did not intend to fulfill them? Now, it's clear that Paul himself is concerned about this and that he's grieved that many of his fellow Jews are rejecting what God is doing in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul is so grieved that just like Moses did for the people of Israel when they sinned at Mount Sinai. So here in chapter 9, Paul says that he would be willing to himself be cursed and cut off, separated from the love and grace of God if it would mean that his Jewish brethren would receive the gift of Christ. But the bigger issue isn't Paul's emotional grief over the unbelief of some of his fellow Jews. The bigger issue is the dependability of God. If God promised his love to Israel in the past, and yet now many of them seem to be cut off from that love, what makes anyone Jew or non-Jew think that they can depend on God's love in the future. Or as Paul puts it in verse 6, is it true that the word of God, his promise to Israel, is it true that this word has failed? Now, Paul's answer is a clear and unequivocal no. And in the verses that follow, his purpose is to explain and defend that answer. And the way he begins in verses six and seven is by raising the question of who it is that God has committed himself to in love. Who is, as John Chrysostom put it, who is the real Israel? For not all, he says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Remember, God had promised to Abraham way back in Genesis 12 and 15 that he would bless him and bless his descendants and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. But as Paul goes on to point out, even in Genesis, it's pretty clear that this promise doesn't simply include everyone who is a biological descendant of Abraham. Take Isaac and Ishmael, for instance, Abraham's two sons. Both were born of Abraham, but only Isaac, Paul says, was the child of promise. Now, similarly, when Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, they're not both automatically included in God's promise. No, it's Jacob to whom God commits himself in love, not Esau. As Paul says, quoting the prophet Malachi, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, this verse this verse can be very off-putting to people today because it almost sounds like God has, God has feelings of love and affection for some people and feelings of disgust and hatred for others. But that's not how we should understand this statement. This isn't a reference to God's feelings of affection or disgust, but rather to God's actions in committing himself to Jacob and the people of Israel rather than to Esau and the people of Edom, his descendants. Again, the point is, not every biological descendant of Abraham is included in the purposes of God. Isaac was, but not Ishmael. Jacob was, but not Esau. And therefore, by extension, Paul is saying, just because every Jewish person does not seem to be receiving the gift of Christ doesn't mean that God has abandoned his promise to Abraham. For not all are children of the promise. Not all those born of Father Abraham are his true descendants. Or as Paul puts it in verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Of course, in and of itself, this doesn't really settle all the concerns that some of Paul's readers might be feeling. After all, even if we accept what Paul is saying here, even if God's promise of love does not belong to every single Israelite, even if the word of God has not failed, does that mean that at the end of the day, that it's really up to us? That only if we're obedient and faithful and make ourselves somehow worthy of God's love, then and only then can we be assured of that love? that's, That's one possible conclusion you could make after hearing what Paul says. You could think, oh, well, I guess Isaac was just more lovable than Ishmael, and Jacob was more lovable than Esau. But what then does that mean about you? Are you lovable enough? Unfortunately, I think Paul recognizes that some people might begin to think this way, And that's why in this chapter, he doesn't just explain how God's promise to Abraham applies only to some rather than others. He also explains why those people are recipients of God's love. What is it about them that makes God commit himself so strongly to these people? So what is it? What made Isaac different than Ishmael? Why did God love Jacob rather than Esau? For that matter, why did God commit himself to Abraham rather to to some other descendant of Noah? Well, according to Paul, it really had nothing to do with any quality in Jacob or Isaac or Abraham. There wasn't anything which made them more worthy of God's love. They weren't more inherently lovable. In fact, as Paul points out, Jacob and Esau were twins, and before they were even born... Before, he says, before either of them had done anything, right or wrong, good or bad, God had already told their mother, Rebekah, that he was choosing to commit himself to Jacob rather than Esau, that the older, as he puts it, would serve the younger. Now, the reason Paul is saying that God commits himself to a people in love, it has nothing to do with their worth or their lovability. It has only to do with his free and gracious love. That's it. In saying this, Paul isn't saying anything new or original. In fact, way back in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses had told the people of Israel the same thing. The reason God loves you, Moses had said to them, has nothing to do with how great or righteous you are as a people, but simply with God's free choice, as Moses puts it, to set his love upon you. And because of that, because God's love is not dependent on you, those who are loved by God can say with full confidence, as Paul did at the end of chapter 8, that there is nothing, nothing in all of creation that can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, this is, a, this is a hard teaching for a lot of people to hear because to, to some people, it sounds like Paul is suggesting that God is just making arbitrary decisions about whom to love. And it seems that Paul anticipates that objection because he himself poses the question in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? At the same time, Paul never really answers that question. He never explains why God chose Isaac rather than Ishmael or Jacob rather than Esau. He simply rejects the question. Of course, that doesn't mean that Paul agrees that he really does think God is unjust and arbitrary, only that he thinks such a question is asking something beyond human understanding. As the Old Testament scholar Christoph Barth once put it, God does have reasons for acting as he does. His free choosing is not arbitrary choosing. He chooses out of free compassion. The grounds are not in the chosen person, but in his own will and plan. Abraham, his descendants, and Israel as a whole will not know and cannot know why they, among so many others, have been elected. They can only accept the fact without understanding the mystery. Now, maybe that doesn't seem like a sufficient answer to you. Maybe you still think that Paul's emphasis on God's free choice to commit himself to particular persons and a particular people makes God arbitrary or unjust. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, I think think a lot of us would confess at least some unease or resistance to what Paul is saying here. But perhaps part of the reason for that lies less with what this says about God than with what it implies about us. After all, we live in a culture that defines itself on success and achievement, on rewarding those who work hard and punishing or just not rewarding those who don't put in the work. Historians and sociologists call our present culture, they call it a meritocracy, because we believe that success should be based on merit and worth. And because of that, we, we, we tend to overlook unearned or unmerited blessings in our lives. Several years ago, an economist named Robert Frank, he wrote a book called Success and Luck. And in that book, he explored our cultural attitudes about success and merit and just how deeply committed we tend to be to the idea that those who succeed, those who get ahead, that they do so as a result of their own hard work. And because of that, as he said in his book, because of that, We are, as a whole, very resistant to acknowledging the role that luck plays in our life. We don't like it when people point out how much unearned opportunities or unmerited circumstances have helped us along the way. Now, of course, Robert Frank is speaking of luck and not the grace of God, and he's focused on the way that we think about success and not salvation. But I think that the attitude that he identifies helps to explain why we sometimes find Paul's teaching in this chapter so difficult. Many Jews like to think that the reason God chose them as his people rather than, say, their Greek or Assyrian or Egyptian neighbors was because somehow they were more worthy of God's love. And we similarly like to think that Whatever success we've experienced in life is because of our own efforts rather than something like the grace of God. But if that were the case, then that would make the love of God dependent on us. If that were the case, if that's how the world worked, then we could be separated from the love of God by our own failures or lack of effort. And Paul doesn't want us to think that way. He doesn't want us to think that somehow, because of some mistake on our part, that the promises of God's love to us in Christ could fail. So he points back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he says, look, see, when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And when God chooses to commit himself to someone in love, nothing can thwart that love. For the love of God does not depend on human work or human effort, as Paul says in verse 16, but on God who has mercy. And in that, we can rejoice.